From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Whew. All right. I'm, I'm feeling really good Have on this good Monday. Weekend. You know, I'm ready to go. It's a day off from, for, for most people in this country, but we don't take a day off. We <laughs> just get it done. So I want to know what you guys have been drinking. I'm really excited to hear. I just, you know... I don't give a shit what what Zach's been drinking. Joanna, what have you been drinking? Okay, I'll go first. So I've been go first and last. making <laughs> making some more um, cocktails at home, uh-huh. um, ones that I haven't made before, and uh, off of a recent uh, Cocktail College episode, yes. made some Martinez's at home. You're returning to what you, you did pre- Yeah. Yeah, pre-pregnancy. Pre-pregnancy. When, when you would like listen to Cocktail College and make a cocktail. Yeah. Good job. Thanks. Um, <laughs> well, I, I wanted to make them, especially because I got some Old Tom gin, which I hadn't had before. Oh, okay. And I feel like sometimes when you just don't have a thing, you just can't make the exactly. cocktail. So and I now made, you had the thing. Yeah, now I had the thing. Um, so I made those, and those were good. I was glad to have had it. I don't know if it's going to be like my go-to drink. <clears throat> Martinez's, for, for those who don't know, have... Um, Old Tom Gin, Sweet Vermouth, Luxardo, um, and Bitters. And then also made some Toronto cocktails. Oh. Mostly because Evan said he wanted to give Fernet Branca another chance. And how were they? They're good. I would actually make that again. That's a rye, Fernet Branca, Demerara, and Orange Twist. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've had Fernet Branca. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So that was uh, fun. Also had a nice bottle of the Ruzi's Superiore. Mm. Colio Sauvignon Blanc. I believe that was on our top 50 list last year. Nice. Um, so that, that's been nice during this past week to have that when I get home from work. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, Adam, what about you? <laughs> what about me? So, uh, yeah, we're skipping you, Zach. We're <laughs> hey, you drink. I drank no, something relevant for the podcast. Fine. What did you drink? <laughs> Black tea? No, chamomile. no, 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 no. <laughs> No, I had a uh, I had a cider from uh, Golden State Cider uh, down in uh, Sonoma. Uh, that's their Dry and Mighty, so it's an alcohol removed cider. And you know, I got to be honest. Uh, as perhaps mentioned before, I w- I'm generally pretty skeptical of of apple of of uh, alcohol removed products. Uh, my, I've had some bad experiences with wine, but this one was uh, shockingly pretty good. I wouldn't straight facedly say you have no idea you're drinking a non-alcoholic cider but it had more kind of complexity and it was quite dry um even though it does you know when you look at the can it does have a you know a fair not a fair bit it has some amount of sugar in it for sure um you know i think probably for body if nothing else but you know was not did not come across as cloying was not did not taste like apple juice it was uh it was quite good i was i was surprised at how uh, you know, enjoyable a drinking experience it was for you know being alcohol removed. So you know, I, I did I did my part this week. I feel like cool, nice. Yeah. How about you, Adam? My niece also likes apple juice. So um, <laughs> for me, had there, were, there was a little bit of winter winter storm. So we walked around uh, and then went into the Bowery Hotel, which I hadn't done in a long time, and had drinks in the Bowery Hotel. Uh, and I had like basically it was like their riff on a paper plane. Mm-hmm. So the Aperol and lemon were the two components I think they kept. Yeah. And then instead of the whiskey, they used mezcal. And instead of the Amaro, they used a banana liqueur. Ooh. And it was really good. Yeah. It was really good. Um, so I enjoyed that. And then uh, I went and had dinner with a really good friend who I hadn't seen in a long time. And we split a bottle of Chablis that, that I've had before, but I don't know if I've talked about it. It was a... Chablis Montmain's from Domaine Gerard Duplace. Nice. It was delicious. And 
Also a really nice Barolo, but I've talked about the Barolo before, so. <laughs> but the thing that was, and we brought that one to the dinner. Oh. Um, but one of the things that I've been noticing recently that I wanted to talk about uh, is that I think like there's this, become this pro- proliferation of restaurants that bill themselves as casual, especially when it comes to the food. So they're cool pizzerias, right? So the average price of the pizza, there's one like this in my neighborhood in Fort Greene. Like you go in, the pizzas are 20 to $25, very limited menu, right? So like the menu is maybe six or eight pizzas. They do a salad, maybe any pasta and like one dessert. The dessert this place does is rainbow cookies, which were delicious. Sure. Uh, or you have a place that like does fried chicken. Uh, you know, they do a bucket. Maybe it's like 38 bucks for the whole <laughs> meal, like all in. Uh, that includes like some appetizers and a dessert. Maybe that dessert is soft serve. Uh, so like casual, like trying to present themselves as casual, right? There's lots of versions of this. I'm sure other people like burger restaurants, et cetera. But then one of the things, again, where I think we, we come back to this again and again and again about the trouble that wine has is then, especially like the pizzeria I was at, they're a wine-only establishment, um, because probably they just didn't want to deal with getting the liquor license. The average bottle cost is $90. And so you're sitting here being like, great. I honestly can't have a affordable night out. Like what – basically you say you're casual but you're not because the second you add alcohol to the meal, you become as expensive basically as anywhere else I would go. Right. And – I kind of find myself wondering if this again is is the problem with wine. Is that and, and and why all these places seem lazy? Because I know that there are affordable bottles out there that they could have on their list. So one theory I have one theory I want to talk about later in the show. Okay. But my other theory is just something that Zach spoke about, prophesized, I think two or two and a half years ago, which was that he felt like coming out of COVID. We were going to see a lot of wine professionals leave the floor mm-hmm. and the wine buying was going to be done by the owner or the manager. In the case of this pizzeria, and by the way, the pizzas are fire. Mm-hmm. When I did have a question about this specific Chablis, because I couldn't remember if I'd had it before, et cetera, literally the server had to go into the kitchen, get the chef. He left making pizzas and came out to talk to me about the wine because mm-hmm. he, and he said he buys the whole list. If when you're that busy, it's just easier to buy the wines you know are gonna like you think are gonna move and the wines you already understand and if that's burgundy and barolo whatever it's less work maybe and zach i don't know you you can correct me if i'm wrong here because maybe it isn't that much more work than trying to go through an importer's list when the rep is in front of you to find the gems in the affordable area and then to teach your service staff how to educate the customer that hey if you like pinot noir that's cool but this is a mencia from spain and that's why it's 50 bucks on the list, and I think you'll like it because it has a lot of those same qualities. I don't know, but this seems to be happen- – I-, I seem to be encountering this situation more and more and more where the price of the alcohol – and this, this is for cocktails too – is completely separate and insane compared to the price of the food. Yeah. I think this is a really interesting point because I think it used to be 
kind of conventional wisdom in the restaurant industry that like you could be a restaurant that had a fancy wine program and expensive bottles, but you had to have fancy food, right? Yeah. You had to make you know people would sort of mostly expect that if they're going to go to a place with with a bunch of bottles on the list that were you know back in the day I don't know over a hundred bucks or bottles that ranged up into the thousands, you were going to be serving them what people tended to associate with you know fancy food, whatever that might have been at the time, whether it was steak or whether it was you know you uh, know kind of classic French cuisine or, or high end Italian or something like that, and. You know, we've always known, we've always talked about how in almost any restaurant setting, in one way or another, you know, in this country at least, alcohol and the sale of alcohol really sort of offsets the fact that selling food in this country is generally a not a very profitable business. Like the way we people approach paying for food, the way that, you know, kind of just the food industry in this country works, restaurants can't generally make a go of it in most cases without robust alcohol sales because they can mark up alcohol more and or the cost of you know the labor and stuff behind it is much less than preparing food but that also meant that if you were a pizza restaurant that had you know no matter how good the pizza was and i'm thinking of like some places in seattle that opened in the last 10 or 15 years you know wood fire pizza is very good you know you go in there and there are bottles of their wine on their list range from I mean, I don't know what it is today, but, you know, last time I was in a couple of years ago, probably ranged from 40, 45 bucks to maybe there were a couple of bottles in the low hundreds, right? You know, 120 bucks or something if you really wanted something, you know, quote unquote mm-hmm. fancy for them. And, you know, that was kind of what everyone accepted is like the the format, right? You want fancy wine, you go somewhere that has fancy wine and fancy food. And it's not to say that there's no audience for quote unquote casual or inexpensive food and fancy wine, but I would sincerely doubt that the average person who's going out to get a $20 pizza or something like that is really like, but what I also want is a $130 bottle of red wine. I mean, maybe, but this weird sort of, you know, sort of separation of the price point and approach of the cuisine, the food on the menu from the way the beverage program is run. I don't, I have thoughts, but I'm not, I, I just don't know I don't know what that is about. I'm not sure. I have, I have a few ideas. I think the problem is that there are enough people in this city in particular who are willing to pay for that wine and with those types of that type of. So you like, think this is you think that, you think this is just a New York City problem? Yeah, because because we hear from people across the country that they feel like when they go to certain restaurants in their cities, again, they live in cities, but. It, these cities are Atlanta, D.C., et cetera, that there still seems to be this disconnect between the kind of establishment they're going to and the price of the alcohol. Now, maybe I, I'm sure that New York is more egregious for yeah. that. I would say the thing I think is different in New York is there's which I do think is specific to New York is the high low concept as a restaurant. Sure. Like, I think I don't think that the pizzeria I went to is trying to be like high low. I think that it. They think the best wine they can serve is these super fucking expensive. I don't know. Actually, I don't know why they're doing it. To be honest, I have no idea. I can't answer it. I think the fried chicken place yeah, is one hundred percent intentional. Four hundred fucking bottles of champagne. Yeah. For fried chicken, I think fried chicken is delicious with champagne, but it's also delicious with cava. I know what you're gonna say. Don't say it. <laughs> Prosecco and just beer and other wine. Right. I, I think. And I think New York, more than any any other city maybe besides L.A., Dallas, whatever, Chicago, embraced the high-low over the last few years aggressively, right? Like, that's what's so fun about it. You can be in a bar having French fries, but there's fucking caviar all over them, bro, and here's a ridiculous martini to drink with it. 
you know, with while music blares so loud you can't hear. And that's a New York thing for sure. But this other thing is so perplexing that I really feel like I only have one answer for it. What is it? I think the answer is money. And the biggest thing I think we talk about all the time in the industry is that the reason prices are high is because of rent. Mm -hmm. But if you look at post-pandemic, a lot of rent came down. A lot of places are were begging restaurateurs to open, et cetera. But what no one talks about that also happened post-pandemic is the amount of predatory loans that started in the industry. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is Toast, which is a payment processor for most restaurants, offers loans. You can basically take out almost up to $300,000 with them, they say on their site. I'm sure some restaurants there's more that they will give you in order to help you, you know, buy new kitchen equipment, open a new spot. They say you can attach that loan to a current location, but use the money to open another place. Uh, the other payment processors all do these loans as well, as well as Amex does these loans. There's a reason Amex bought Resi. And the way that these loans work, and they make it very easy for the restaurateur, is you can apply in a second. And they say they're looking at your sales in order to gauge how much money you will get. And then they say, oh, guess what? The way that we're going to make the money back for you is you don't even have to worry about making the payments. We're just going to take a cut of every swipe of your credit of your credit card through our processor. Yeah. With Am- in Amex's case, it's every time an Amex is swiped. So often, like, you'll see why a restaurant converts and says, we- we'd really prefer if you paid with Amex in certain places. Sometimes the Amex loans have changed, but that's the majority of the ways. I mean, Keith is very open about it. That's what he did towards the end of his restaurant life. Okay. We still got an Amex loan. And... They are able to value your business because, you know, with Amex, they're looking at Resi and they're looking at how many reservations are happening. And they're saying, okay, cool. So we see you're getting a lot of traction. Do you want a loan? And they literally have people going out and approaching these restaurants. So with Toast, Toast is seeing how many transactions you're doing. And they're saying, we we have an easy loan for you. Mm -hmm. Here's $300,000 to open your next version of this bakery. And then here's your next version of this bakery and your next version of this bakery. And maybe one of your one of your versions of your bakery is also a restaurant. And the other one's a meat shop, right? And you're taking all these toast loans. And then what I think happens is the consumer will notice the increase in price on the food. But the alcohol is very easy to charge more for. And so often I wonder that the way if this is also this part that is driving the industry up that we're not talking about, which is all these restaurateurs are taking loans that are very easy to get right now. And then in order to pay them off, they're raising the, the check price. And the easiest place to raise the check price is alcohol. Because if not, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because you're you're pissing consumers off. Mm-hmm. right? If, if you think about conversations we've had in the past, we're going to run a, a podcast tomorrow with um, a board member of the restaurant and bar show, uh, Michael. And he talks about sort of how a consumer – in another city, once a New York restaurant experience, but not a New York price, right? Yeah. They'll walk away. And I think even here, like I want a pizzeria experience, not a fine dining price of the pizzeria experience. So there has to be a reason that someone's doing that. I think part of it is that they do know that a lot of New Yorkers have money and will pay. I think yeah. you're 100% right on that. But I think there has to be something else. And it, all I can think of when I think about who I, you know, based on my conversation in the industry is that it's these loans hmm. and we're not talking enough about them. 
Yeah, it was really interesting when you brought this up, Adam, because I think for people who are not on the, you know, kind of the operator owner side, it, it, this might be news to a lot of folks that, that, you know, we all think about small business loans being handled by like, you know, a bank or something like yeah. that, right? You want to, you want to open or, you know, or you go out and get a private loan, um, you know, you get investors or things like that, right? We, got, we think about these sort of ways of funding a new venture or even an existing venture that conform to our, you know, kind of previous models. But with businesses that are doing lots and lots of transactions like this, you know, as you said, whether it's the payment processor, credit card companies, et cetera, have come in and said, hey, look, you know, yeah, we don't, you don't have to make us a payment every month. We'll just take whatever, you know, fraction of a, you know, whatever percent or whatever it is off the top, essentially, of every transaction you do. But we all know that the restaurant industry is all about extremely thin margins, even when you are successful, even if you are profitable, it is not a lot. And I think a lot of places that maybe people who looked at these loans and said either, well, this is easier for me, or I maybe think I'm getting more generous terms than I was getting from, I would be getting from a bank, or I can't get a bank loan for a variety of reasons, or like, shit, I can't put together a business plan and go present it. I don't have time for that. But like, here Toast is making me an offer. And like, I really could use that extra, you know, $75,000 or something. All of that stuff has knock on effects that we they're hard to foresee. I mean, you know, you said predatory, and I use that word in Slack, and I don't think it's inaccurate. I think, you know, a lot of cases, it's it's looking at businesses that clearly to stay afloat or expand or whatever need an injection of capital. And yet, you know, I think it's really hard for an operator to look at what the down, you know, like the long-term effects of one of these kinds of loans can be on their business. And you're right, raising prices is a you know, time-honored tradition of, of generating more revenue. And I, I, we've said for many, many years that Alcohol is just an easier place for people to to hide those costs or to raise those costs because even in the world now where people have had maybe more exposure to retail pricing and have a little bit better understanding of what wine costs, it's still hard for people to hold that in their head. And if you're in a situation like the one you're describing at this pizza place where the only beverage option is wine and you want to have a drink, well, in the end, you're going to kind of end up making the choice that the restaurant wants you to make. And even if you don't feel great about it, and even if it leaves you a little like, well, you know, kind of wish there was a $60 bottle of wine on this list or something like that, you are a captive audience in that regard. And if the pizza is really good, maybe you're even okay with that conceptually. I just wonder, you know, why do we think it is, because this is, you know, Adam, you said this, I've, I've said this before, I've heard other people say it. Why is it that you think that people are so in this country are so resistant to paying more for their food? <sighs> that's a good question. Um, I think that's because people have a certain, you know, expectation about how much food should cost. And uh, I think that a lot of the times they fail to kind of understand the systems behind, like the food system itself and, and uh, you know, how that might change depending on the economy or other factors. And so, um, yeah, I think if they feel... I think there's just like a disconnect, especially with the restaurants. Like, even if prices are going up at the grocery store, that... And they're feeling that at home, that when they're going to restaurants, those things should remain stable and not reflect those types of um, increases that we're seeing elsewhere. Yeah, I think also like so many of the the popular dishes that people eat in this country are made at different kinds of establishments, right? So pizza is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you can make a pizza at home. Not the way that maybe we would, right? When I'm, I'm not talking about people who have unis. I'm talking about people that go to the freezer section and get tombstone or DiGiorno or whatever. And it's 
I don't even know what the current price of a DiGiorno is. Let's say seven ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's cheaper, six ninety nine. Sure. You could then go a step further and go to takeout, but to one of these takeouts like Papa John's Domino's. or Little Caesars, Domino's, and then it's what eleven ninety nine. They're always running prices like three for fifteen dollars, whatever. Or then you can go gourmet, mm-hmm. and the gourmet can't be that much more than what you're getting when you're taking out from Domino's. It can be more, but not much more. Right. I think the same is probably true for burgers, things like that. People are more willing to spend at the high, high end when it's just cuisine they have no idea about, like the tasting menus, right? Like yeah. no one knows. I, I don't know what this foam cost. I couldn't make it. Mm-hmm. It, it. I'm willing to spend more. There's a lot more of that disconnect when it comes to drinks, whereas exactly what you're saying. A, I also, I also think that I think people may drink out, drink less at home. I don't know. So they're willing to pay a little bit more for out. I, I honestly, I don't. It's a weird thing. It's a weird thing that we are willing to pay more for alcohol, more unquestionably than we are for food. Well, and I think it's extremely noticeable with these kind of casual concepts, right? Yes. Because as you said, we all have a sort of notion in our head. Well, what should a pizza cost? What yeah. should a uh, fried chicken cost? What should a hamburger cost? Fewer of us have a fixed idea in our head of like, well, what should an omakase sushi dinner cost? Or what should yes. a beef wellington cost or something, right? Like we don't order those things as often. Most of us, if you're out there doing the omakase thing three times a week, good for you. Um, you know, most of us Check don't. Check your mercury make- levels. Yeah, well, that too. We don't we don't necessarily make those dishes at home, or we do only on special occasions. So we just don't really have the same framework for these cuisines that are more commonplace uh, or more sort of a regular part of our diet, whether they're you know the the high end or the low end or in between. And so, yeah, I think it's totally true that 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 sort of puts a hard limit on what you can reasonably charge for that kind of food in an environment where. Some number of people are going to be like, well, okay, I'm sure the fried chicken is great, but like KFC is right there. And that's, you know, a fraction of the cost of this or something like that. I also think that this comes back to something we've talked about before when when juxtaposing wine and cocktails in restaurants. And it's that cocktails can hide their costs better because they just have a harder – we have a harder time understanding what all goes into any given drink. And even though they are more labor intensive and therefore perhaps – not as profitable as restaurateurs would want them to be or think they are in some sense, they do, on the face of it at least, offer a much higher potential you know, margin than a bottle of wine even. And even if you mark that bottle of wine up a lot, you know, even more than we would think a sort of common industry standard, you're not getting five or six X margin on your you know, cost of goods as opposed to what you might get on a certain cocktails. Mm-hmm. So instead, your, your, your sort of solution is just like, well, we might not get the same you know, margin, but we're just going to have more expensive wine because we figure, okay, yes, maybe a more expensive program, some people are going to just choose not to drink, or maybe they'll have a glass of wine instead of the two top ordering a bottle or something like that. But as long as we're not totally tanking our sales, in the end, the gross profit is going to be better for us. And we just kind of are, again, we're just kind of convinced that in the end, it's not going to come back to bite us. And I think this is one of those things, you know, we, we talked about this as the as a problem for wine, and it is a problem for wine, but it's a, a problem that's like a you know the sort of problem with the commons, right? Because this might be a good idea for any individual restaurant. It's just when everyone is doing it, the the general public sentiment is like, well, fuck that. Well, I don't, and that's why I think I, it has to be toast or something like that because everybody's yeah. doing it. But I think for individual restaurants, it, it is like a, a sort of understandable decision. It, it makes a certain sense if you think you can get away with it. It's just not everyone can get away with it, and eventually maybe no one can get away with it. Well, let me ask a question to the other drinker this month. 
which is <laughs> so Zach made a comment that I think is interesting but as a cons- I want to like as I want you to respond as a consumer okay so Zach said like have a $60 bottle of wine on the list so let's say that this place I went to had one $60 red or even $55 and one $65 white and then the the rest of the wines were all priced between like 85 to 120 yeah is that enough or is that even more of a fuck you I think probably for I think that's probably the smartest thing that they could possibly do. Okay. And the expect my expectation or my assumption rather is that they probably sell the most of those bottles and they probably make the best margin on that bottle. That's probably that's my assumption. Would okay. that be right? I don't know. What do you guys think? I'm, I'm saying for, for me, no, but as a, so for me, I don't know why for me as a consumer it feels like it's like oh, so this is the bone you're throwing me. Like I hope it's good, but now if I don't really want to drink that, then I almost like I'm more annoyed about paying mm-hmm. the higher price for something else that I want because it doesn't tickle my fancy. Like I don't know what if sure. like what if that's that fifty five dollar bottle of white. I mean, like for example, if I'm dining with Keith and it's a Riesling, and I'm just yeah. joking, Keith. Uh, <laughs> you know, like if it's if it's a variety you're not into or whatever, then or it's or like let's say that it's a white, but like okay, guys, let's say that I see who the importer is and I learn that it's toilet bowl wine. Mm-hmm. Like I don't if it's like super super natural. I'm not. I'm I'm gonna actually enjoy that less, but then I'm also gonna be annoyed that everything else to choose from is super expensive. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I just think it's like... But it, I agree. They should probably do it anyways. You have to have one of... You have a, have a white. You have to have a red, I think. Yeah. And I think that for people... What I was going to say earlier, what I was going to ask rather, is like, don't you feel like this is a deterrent for people who, when they're going into a place like a pizza place, pizza place and maybe people are younger, right? Because they're like, oh, this is like a casual pizza place and yeah. it's really hot right now. Like, I want to go there. That having an inaccessible wine list is like, they're never going to buy a bottle. They're never going to be like, I'm not going to get a bottle. And forget it. We'll maybe have a glass, like Zach said. And then the restaurant has to, you know, be satisfied with that being the the situation for probably a lot of people at that place. I agree. So I think that if it's like, yes, you have younger people going in and they see they don't see any bottle that's under $70, then it's like, forget it. There's never a chance that they're going to buy a bottle. But if you have a few, maybe even if will. they're maybe they will. This is fascinating. Let let us know what you think at uh, podcast at vinepair If you're seeing this, I'm curious, especially to our listeners who don't live in New York. Yeah. If you're seeing this uh, same kind of phenomenon with the high low, like Zach, you've talked about seeing it in Seattle. Yeah, for sure. If you live in other places, other cities, smaller towns, let us know if you're also seeing the sort of casual places with more expensive lists. Um, I feel like it's this, this weird phenomenon that. I, you have to peg this. There has to be some other. How long will it last? I think as long as there's these financial drivers. Like, again, I can't. I, I don't want to get blasted for only blaming these these types of loans. Yeah. But I've been like looking into them a bunch in preparation for this podcast. And the ease of application is insane. And the way they talk about how easy it is, it's like, it, it sounds... You don't have to do anything. It sounds like free money. Yeah. And there are lots of people I know who listen to this show who have worked in restaurants for a very long time and probably own restaurants who know owners who are great owners but not business people. Mm. And it's very easy to take advantage of those types of people because the the, the copy reads like, you don't secure, not secured by you as a person, not secured to your business, but kind of is, right? Like you're going to have to pay that back somehow. They're giving you $300,000. It's very, it, 
Super simple to do to pay back. It's just a swipe of the card every time. We take a percentage of every transaction. They don't say how, bu- how big the percentage is. Like maybe if you're, if you're delayed in your payments, your payments aren't big enough, maybe the percentage gets bigger and bigger and bigger. They don't say that in the initial copy. Yeah. I'm sure it's in the fine print somewhere. I've, I don't own a restaurant, so I haven't gone for, far enough down to see. But so many of these places do this. So many financial institutions that support restaurants offer these now. And it is the way that these businesses raised all their capital. Because let's be real. Nobody gave a shit about another restaurant reservation platform. Mm -hmm. No investor did. But the second that Amex realized how they could attach value to that and combine that with their financial services platform, that becomes a very lucrative business for Amex. For all these payment processors, yes, you do make money in payment processing, but you make a lot more money loaning money. Yeah. And so you can raise a lot more money as these startups. Like Toast is a startup. Yeah. Right? You can raise a lot more money by saying to your investors, we are going to partner or even open a financial institution and wing of our business. We are going to offer loans to operators. Here's how we are going to value those loans based on the amount of transactions that we see happening in real time. And then we will get the money back as guaranteed revenue for our business every single day. Well, and I think it also explains why so many of these that kind of high-low places we're talking about in many cases are second or third or whatever restaurants because the high-low concept is really good at not just generating attention, although it does that to some extent, but also like you can do a lot of volume. Yeah. And I think a lot of these are built around the notion of appeasing yeah. some of these loans and these platforms through volume. And yeah, maybe not every single one of those tables orders one of the 400, bo- uh, 400 bottles of champagne or maybe they don't even drink, but like you fundamentally need a certain density of 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 bookings and obviously in any city that's uh, true in any restaurant that's true but i think with especially you know this concept is i think is well matched to that idea of like ooh we can go have this like you know food that has widespread kind of you know almost universal very proven appeal and we can append to it this other revenue generator which is like high end wine sales yeah. and if it works we're probably looking real fucking smart I mean, look, one of the other things that no one's talking about, and so just my mic drop as we leave the conversation, is the other thing you're seeing that's become a trend is a lot of these fancier restaurants that are all of a sudden converting to more casual concepts where it's like same style of food, but like, and really good wine list, but more casual. I wonder if a lot of these conversions is being driven by the amount of loans that they have taken out. And they're realizing that by having this much more expensive concept where they don't do as many turns. They can't pay back these loans fast enough and they're not getting higher overhead and they they have higher overhead. So therefore you drop the cost down. You create a more casual concept. There's multiple restaurants in New York. that are doing this right Right now. now. Yeah. You convert to more wine bars. Yep. You already have the, you already have the high end wine program because you took on the sellers. Right. Right. But you convert to a place where you can do instead of two turns a night four, and you pay the loans off more. It's 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 something that no one is talking about in the industry, and we need to talk more about it because I actually think it's driving a lot of what's happening. There's two. I hear in in casual conversation too often. How did this? When I ask, how did this restaurateur open another place? Oh, he took out a toast loan. Mm-hmm. I hear it all the time, and I think it's happening more and more and more. So. Anyways, let us know if you know. Hit us up at podcast.mindpair.com. Uh, this has, you know, as always, we want to hear your opinions. Uh, let us know, and I'll see you right back here on Friday. Have a great week. 
Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.